Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel. And I'm Jennifer Waits. And today we're going to go back and visit border broadcasting, radio broadcasting along the border between Mexico and the United States. But today we're going to look at really more of the perspective from the Mexican side. We've talked in past about stations which are which were really directed towards uh, English speaking American audiences. And today we're, we're going to look at, at, at and fill in more of that story. And what's fun here is this kind of interview, I, I always love when it happens, is our guest uh, who's joining us read something that I wrote <laughs> a few weeks ago <laughs> about tuning in a station near Tijuana in, in Mexico uh, late at night. So, And, and I live in, in, in Portland, Oregon, and so which is fairly far away from Tijuana, Mexico, but on, on the frequency 1700 AM. Which, which does not have a lot of stations on it, period, uh, anywhere in, in North America or Central America, for that matter. And I heard pop music and, you know, American pop music, Huey Lewis. And then I heard what I believe to be Spanish, but I couldn't quite make it out. Uh, you know, and again, my Spanish isn't great. Uh, station ID breaks. I heard no commercials. It seemed weird. And I wrote about it. And our guest uh, wrote in to sort of fill me in a little bit more and to alert us to the fact that, uh, that in fact, she knows a lot about uh, Mexican broadcasting, especially along the northern border. So I want to introduce Sonia Robles, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Delaware and the author of the book Mexican Waves, radio broadcasting along Mexico's northern border, 1930 to 1950. Uh, welcome to Radio Survivor, Sonia. Thank you for inviting me. So, Sonia, on previous episodes, we've talked about some of these big, well-known border blasters like Wolfman Jack and, you know, the station that peddled these quack medical cures. And what I think is really interesting about your research is that you're looking beyond these kind of big stories of powerful broadcasters and looking more at the stories of maybe the lesser known and the lower power stations that were broadcasting along the northern border of Mexico. So I just wanted to start and ask why you think it's important to tell these particular stories. Yes, um, excellent. I think that they complement each other in the in the creation of the borderlands. Uh, I think for, for so long, the conversation and the reports about the borderlands have been, you know, about crisis, about illegal behavior, um, about the things you mentioned, you know, these these crazy, you know, 5,000 watt stations, these huge border blasters. Um, Wolfman Jack, he, he always makes an appearance because how can you not just say Wolfman Jack? Exactly. <laughs> you know, as somebody that was on the airwaves, right? Um, but I think, you know, at, at the same time, it, it wasn't, you know, the Mexican government wasn't just granting, you know, these U.S. entrepreneurs or these, you know, U.S. Um, renegades, right, um, radio concessions, they were also granting them to, to Mexicans, right, to Mexican entrepreneurs. So they weren't, they were doing it at exactly the same time, early 1930s, um, up until um, the period I study is, is right up into the Second World War. So um, I think it's important because they're happening at the same time, but for so long, these conversations about the border have have really only focused on in these sort of big 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 stories, you know, the 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 ways that they broke the law um, versus other people who were transmitting smaller stations, you know, seven point five watt, you know, two hundred watts, one hundred watts, and they were just reaching their their immediate um, regional audience on both sides of the border. 
Yeah, I think that's what I love about broadcast historians, like bringing a lot of these stories to light that maybe weren't part of kind of this bigger history that you often hear about. So maybe we could take a little bit of a step back. Uh, You're focusing on 1930 to 1950. Can we talk a little bit about the beginnings of radio in Mexico and, and what was happening in the 1920s? And in particular, what was happening in Mexican broadcasting in the 1920s as far as what was being broadcast across the border, too? So Mexico, um, the Mexican Revolution is is the the beginning, um, you know, marks the, the sort of major event of the 20th century. It's the first social revolution. Uh, many times, you know, I think that the Russian Revolution gets a lot of credit for being the first, you know, but um, <laughs> those of us who study Latin America, we like to, you know, remind people that it's, hey, you know, what about the Mexican Revolution, which began in 1910, you know, 1911. So, Mexican Revolution really just creates chaos and, and devastation. Um, you know, the countryside is is a mess. Um, th- there's been a for Mexico, there was a large loss of, of population. You know, a lot of people have died. Um, so by the 1920s, when when radio begins, there's this desire to to revamp the nation, to to reconstruct the nation, to you know, you know to really unify the nation. Mexico, that geography is actually quite um, mountainous, especially in the central area. In the north, it, there's you know deserts, and so I think the idea is to use broadcasting, or, or was to use broadcasting, to unite the population. And um, from the 1920s, at the same time, um, there were uh, groups of immigrants who left Mexico um, because of the revolution and and settled in the United States. And so since the 20s, you have some bilingual transmissions, um, a couple of special reports from the Mexican official stations, you know, to try to get the, the Mexican immigrants in the U.S. to to hear the government, you know, the sort of, you know, yeah. hear the voice of the fatherland. Uh-huh. I was curious about that. What Can you tell us a little bit more about those official government stations? Yeah, definitely. So for um, right now, I'm I'm working a, a little bit more um, on uh, other projects. One, one specifically is, is a station administered uh, by the Ministry of Public Education, um, so I was I was fascinated by the interview that that you the the podcast that you had a couple a couple of weeks ago right about educational radio and um, I I love that one and so um, this this official station begins in 1924 and they serve at this this official station by the Ministry of Public Education they um, they have bulletins from pretty much all of the other ministries at the time so we have public health. Um, you know, there's this big anti-alcoholic, you know, anti-alcohol campaign, for example. There's also hygiene. Um, and they're also doing these government. I mean, the, the president is going on there in the in the late 1920s, you know, early 1930s and, and just, you know, speaking to whoever would listen, you know, but many times what they would do would be coordinate with with consulates here in the United States. So consulates would hire out, you know, the, the local hall, right. And, you know, turn on the, the transmitter, you know, and just kind of invite a lot of people um, to hear. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm digging into this, this station. Um, I have a series of of records, you know, with me, thankfully that I'm, I'm, I'm sorting through, but, um, but yeah, the official stations really begin at the same time as a commercial one. So 1923, 1924. Um, but this particular station, this, um, XFX is what it's called. The Ministry of Public Education station really be- becomes the center of of all of the um, of the majority of the official voice, right? This this sort of official voice um, in the twenties um, up into the the early nineteen thirties. 
And would you say it had sort of a propaganda type purpose or more of, I'm just curious, like what was the nature of the majority of what they were doing? Yeah, excellent question. It it was really a a combination of education and propaganda and music. So I would say those three things, because in the afternoons they would have concerts. Um, and so, for example, this, this past week, uh, I ran in, into this, uh, to what I found, you know, to be like this sort of peculiar story of this man who had traveled to Europe, this Mexican elite middle-class man had traveled to Europe and, and returned to Mexico City with these records, with these, you know, classical music records. And he sent a letter to the station saying, you know, can I please go on there and play my records, you know? <laughs> and, and the station was like, sure, we would love to, you know, we would love to have you. Um, but then, um, you know, so they had sort of given him a schedule, okay, every Friday from, you know, 8 to 10 p.m., something like that. And then, sure enough, you know, um, one of the Fridays when he's supposed to go to the station, you know, with, you know, hauling his records and play them, um, the president had, you know, d- would just happen that, you know, he wanted to also speak over the radio, you know. So, wow. I, you know, I, I found <laughs> <laughs> so I found this letter that, you know, was sort of just like, you know, dear Mr., you know, whatever, can you please push it back to tomorrow? <laughs> you know, but would, would you mind coming in tomorrow and, and, you know, and playing your records because the president is going to, is going to be speaking. So, so yeah, you know, it, it, these peculiar kind of, of stories are historians and scholars, you know, we, we live for that kind of, you know, like little mm-hmm. stories, but it, it's really the, the bigger story is just more that this, that it wasn't just propaganda, right? It was, it was music. Um, and it was also instruction, instruction for housewives, the sort of, founding member of the station was was a woman. Um, her name was Maria Luisa Ross. And she was, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to dig into her as well. You know, she, she, she was, you know, the jefe de la, de la oficina, right? You know, they never called her jefa. They always called her jefe, uh, you know, and, uh, and she, she really wanted to, to focus on, on housewives, but also on, on children, on children's education in the, in the rural areas. So, so this is all, really fascinating for me but but yeah it's part of a of, of additional projects that I'm or, or current projects I should say and I love hearing these stories about these women who are starting stations in the 1920s because we don't often hear enough of those stories absolutely yeah yeah definitely I think there's more there and the history of Mexican radio um you know I think I mentioned this in in the book right the, the focus so much has been on Mexico City on on, you know, this, it's such a centralized, Mexico is such a centralized country. So, you know, Mexico City kind of has always, you know, led the the narrative. But I think um, for so long, we know that there's other other stories, right, happening in, in other places. So one of the reasons I, I got into, you know, this this topic of um, that I eventually, you know, ended up writing, writing my book about was, was because there were so many um, files at the at the National Archives from these stations a- along the northern border. And, you know, it was almost about half. Right. And I thought, well, this is strange, you know, because for so long, the the story has been focused on Mexico City, the Mexico City stations. How is it that, you know, in 1931, there was a station in Ciudad Juarez, but also, you know, a bunch of stations in Mexico City, for example, you know, and, and that that's kind of how I. I got into it. But yes, I mean, there's so much to be written about the history of radio in Mexico still. As Paul mentioned, um, you're on the show today in large part because of a response to Paul's piece where he talked about hearing a station from afar. And and he wrote up kind of his reaction to that. And and I know that, that you've looked at some of these listener responses in the United States to these early stations. So what um, what were people hearing in the United States over the Mexican airwaves and, and what was um, of interest to them? 
So I, I would break it into two different groups. Um, I would say that the, um, the English language listeners were hearing music, right? They, they, much like Paul, you know, they were, some of the letters I found, they were curious to, to understand, you know, is this Spanish that I, you know, that I'm listening to? You know, I, th- I think it is, but I'm not sure. They wanted clarification, many of them. They were actually like literally writing letters to say, you know, is this you, you know, kind of, of letters for the Mexican and for the Spanish language listeners that, that um, whose letters I've, I found in the archives, they were, they were a little bit more critical of, of what they heard. Um, speaking of, you know, women and, you know, gender, right. You know, the gendered soundscape, right. Which I know you've had Christine Eric on here before, you know, yeah, for sure. You know, there, there's one particular letter that, you know, is, is obviously just, you know, um, compliments, you know, and reaffirms her, her claims and her arguments. And, and it's this, it's a man, you know, um, from, he was in New Orleans, right? So this Mexican, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, middle-class, um, you know, sort of elite man um, writing to, to Mexico City, to, you know, saying, um, you know, I'm so excited that I, I tuned in, you know, last night, but, but I can't believe that you chose a woman to sing the national anthem. <laughs> you know, I, I yes. Uh, you know, everything was great, you know, but, but, you know, but, but why did you choose a woman, you know, to sing the national anthem? So the, the Mexican responses tend to be either just really critical in that way about, you know, what, what they heard, because I think they see it as a representation of Mexico, right? And, and they were abroad, or it's the opposite. It's, um, thank you for, you know, for, for making this happen. I feel closer to my home. Many of the immigrants, you know, this is this has been a pretty long part of immigration. The immigration story is that there's always a hope to go back, mm-hmm. uh, right? There's always, a, you know, this idea that, you know, yes, you're going to, you know, you're going to do whatever it takes to, you know, to make it to the United States. But, but you know, you're either going to be sending money back or you're going to be, you know, like literally, you know, building a house, you know, a second home back in Mexico or, you know, back in Central, you know, Central America with this, this illusion that, that you're going to return. Um, and, and, and it doesn't happen, you know, very often, but this sort of desire is still there, right? This, this, this kind of dream. And so, so it's all over the place, I guess, to answer that the letters um, are definitely something that, that are, are fun um, and that I feel really grateful for to have found in the archives, because I know that, um, and as you, as you know as well, right, when we study media, um, we always get the question about reception, right? You know, right. well, who was listening? <laughs> you know, uh, what 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 did they have to say? You know, um, so I think I I feel really grateful, but at the same time, it's it's this sort of burden of, you know, I have to do something with this now, right? And I, I want to make sure that I'm telling the the right the right story the um, the proper way. <laughs> so you're all talking about these Mexican radio stations that were directing some of their programming to you know, the diaspora in the United States. I wonder if you if you know or have a sense for what the relationship was between the governments, Mexican and, and United States governments at the time, with, you know, specifically with regard to broadcasting. You know, this is sort of, if when we're talking about, uh, you know, the 1930s, it's still kind of early days and early days for the, uh, for, for various types of covenants or treaties to be worked out to govern cross-border broadcasting. I don't know if, do you have any, any sense for whether this was, uh, you know, officially sanctioned? Was this worked out between the two governments? It doesn't really begin to be a problem for the U.S. government um, that these Mexican stations are, um, are, are broadcasting into the United States um, until these border blasters, right? Until, um, you know, Brinkley, um, Baker, 
these sort of um, outlaws, right, that went into Mexico and just, you know, did whatever they could to have these, you know, gigantic um, transmitters. And roughly, to, to uh, what's that time frame then? When does so that this happen? is 1931, 1932, 1933. Okay. Um, so for, 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 yeah, so for the entire decade of the 30s, um, the U.S. is, I, I've also um, done a bunch of research at the Ministry of, of Foreign Relations in Mexico City. So that, that that's really where you get these big State Department officials, you know, writing these memos, you know, can you please, you know, tell them to stop transmitting, you know, and, and then, then, of course, they become more aggressive, you know, and they're they say they've sort of violated X law um, from regional agreements. Um, th- there are regional agreements in the 20s, but the, the biggest the biggest regional agreements come you know later in the 30s, like 19, 1937. And then the Second World War kind of creates um, like a pause, right? And so then it, it, things get reorganized. Um, and by the Second World War, these the stations that I was focusing on, you know, from from the 30s, they're not they're no longer there. Um, they don't come back. Like you know, um, Brinkley doesn't come back after the Second World War. He's he's gone. Um, one of the border so blasters. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. One of the border blasters doesn't come back. So the relationships between the governments were 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 otherwise, you know, pretty pretty standard. You know, this is the the sort of pre 1940s you know relationships i think mexico right. is, is like i said mexico is really starting to to have this you know reconstruction um policies and you know focusing on education um you know focusing on reforming the countryside you know let's be more productive you know implementing technology but as far as the airwaves are concerned um the u.s government doesn't really pay attention until you know until these these huge sort of Border right. They care more about uh, the border blasters, I mean, in part because they're broadcasting in English and, and, and in some cases broadcasting uh, things that they could not broadcast in the United States. Uh, you know, that's a whole history unto itself. But there's a reason why they why they, you know, to some reached, you know, went to Mexico uh, and left and left the United States. Uh, so, so that's interesting. And I think also his background, you know, will remind folks that you know, certainly in the 1930s, we're still in the Great Depression in the United States. Uh, the administration for the most of the 30s is is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So, that you know, probably I could imagine, again, that, that these uh, broadcasts of the diaspora from from Mexico are, are not a high concern. For, for for an American administration at, at that time. Sonia, I'm also thinking about, you write a bit about kind of the idea of the border and maybe if you could talk about what what is the border, the northern border of Mexico, um, how does that border feel during this period of time? And just as a personal example, my grandfather was working on ranches that were on both sides of the border in this period between 1923 and 1931. So in Calexico wow. and Mexicali and just like traversing back and forth working and in reading, you know, his memoir, um, <laughs> it, you know, it seems very seamless. Like he's part of both of these communities. So, so what does that feel like at the time, both um, on the ground, but also on the airwaves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. E- excellent. Um, I'm not sure that, you're familiar with with um, this phrase. I, I know Chicano historians um, frequently use this phrase when 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 they begin, you know, to talk about their history. But it but they say um, 
we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, right? Um, and so, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as to, to sort of to set up, you know, the I think the answer to to your, your yes, um, very excellent question. What what did it actually look like? Um, I think I think on the western side, um, you know, Tijuana, right? You know, we ta- we mentioned Tijuana earlier. Yeah, it was just this military outpost, late twenties, early thirties, right? You know, it's it, again, you know, prohibition plays a huge role, but but other than that, you know, this isn't a very industrialized, you know, large, um, you know, the, the city doesn't have um, a huge. Oh, population. so could you drink legally in Mexico during prohibition? Absolutely, yes. Ah, okay, yeah. yes. This explains yes. a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. What, what one of the stations um, XEBC um, that that I um, that I look at and that I feature in the book um, was a station that was um, was operated at, at the um, Agua Caliente um, Casino and Resort. Um, it was you know horse racing. You know you had you know the Hollywood elite going down there, and and they they had a, a radio station. You know that that sort of you know that resort that transmit you know. <laughs> all kinds of things right um a lot of them in english um of course but you know they didn't you know they, they weren't a high power station at all i think it's like 50 or 100 watts or so so um so yeah so it looked really different on the western side um on the on the you know if we look at the at the northern border as you know sort of starting over here in you know tijuana and then ciudad juarez right el paso is kind of like right in this middle area you know we, we have the river right you know which begins in this sort of you know river valley over towards texas um over there um on the eastern and the sort of you know central side you th- there are older cities um you know so we have you know spanish you know colonial era you know type of cities um because you know obviously you know before the United States became the United States and Mexico became Mexico, right? You know, um, Spain had control there and, and Spain had set up, um, again, you know, little military outposts. So there are more people right on, on that side of, of the northern borderlands um, in the early 1930s um, and in the 20s. But they don't um, see, you know, an actual barrier, right, you know, between the two countries. I think it's, um, you know, one of the women actually that that I mentioned in the book, you know, she she, you know, she wrote to, you know, to the Ministry of Public um, of Communications and Public Works, you know, um, please let me have a regional station. You know, I, I want to cover, you know, the entire, you know, river valley. Right. Because she, in her mind, you know, that that's, you know, th- this is what the airwaves can do. So, you know, why shouldn't I be able to, you know, to have this kind of business? Right. So um, I think that, yeah, you know, this maybe goes back a little bit to the motive of, you know, for writing this book and, and telling this story. I think. I really, when I was doing this research, I really saw that these Mexican entrepreneurs, that they really, that they acknowledged that the, that, uh, that the border, you know, could be a very, you know, restrictive and, and sort of a limiting place or that, that, it, that it didn't really exist for them, right? That, that, they're, that what they were into, you know, the business that they did, that they crossed the border. So it's fine, you know, let's just use this station to, um, you know, to get businesses, you know, from the U.S. side um, to sponsor us. Um, and let's just try to keep the lights on. So that that was why I, I focused on. All right. You know, my intention was was really to focus on them as as entrepreneur, Mexican entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, you think about the border of U.S. and Mexico today, like that whole idea is so fraught in our culture because of um, divisive the divisiveness that's happening in the United States right now mm-hmm. uh, with immigration and, and, but thinking about this period of time and thinking about radio at the border, that idea of border can be so um, 
it feels so different in 2020. Um, and, and I think about, uh, the board of radio that you're talking about all these different layers of, of listeners, you have listeners in the United States and in Mexico. And I'm assuming that, um, that broadcast, you mentioned that broadcasts could be bilingual. So you have different languages. Um, can you maybe just explain, um, more of what's going on and, and who the assumed audience is, is, is the audience assumed to be on both sides of the border and speaking both languages? Um, I'm sure it's different from station to station, but maybe talk about a few examples. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, there's one one Mexican entrepreneur that I look at. Um, his name is Jorge R- Rivera, and he had um, he he had the, uh, the concession to operate a station in Tijuana, um, XXAC, right? XCAC, and. Uh, he explicitly, um, when he was being, when they were, when the, when the, when the government, um, when the government was trying to impose its its laws and, you know, to try to, um, to, to give him, you know, to, to restrict him from, from what he was broadcasting, he, he wrote back and, and complained and said, um, I broadcast, you know, Mexican music and Spanish language music at night um, and early in the morning. Um, because my audience is in the United States and and they're working during the day, um, and during the day I broadcast English language programming because that's when you know my audience in the United States um, is at home. You know, so housewives or you know you know people working. So Interesting. He, yeah, I mean, I, or, or um, you know, there are other examples of um, broadcasters, uh, op- sorry, operators who said, you know. Um, we want to do dedications, for example. You, you know, Mexican law said that you couldn't, you know, say somebody's full legal name over the airwaves, right? You know, the, all these, you know, partic- you know, particular things. And you know, when they were writing back in, in their in their complaints to the um, to the Mexican government, they said, "Well, um, this is the way they they do it in the United States, and you know, the people in the United States, you know, are th- this is the audience that we intend to please, and so you know, we're going to keep doing this. You know, there's a lot of there is a lot of defiance, you know, for the law, um, not so much I think for the border, right? I think that this is what this is another thing that I was really trying, you know, hoping to." to uncover it's it's not that the these mexican entrepreneurs or you know the people that that i feature it's not that they they defied the border it's just that they, they acknowledged that the that the legal border was there right but they just you know they had you know i think i said this right before, you know a couple minutes ago they had businesses that could that, that could defy the border you know they could just cross and so um so their their sort of beef was more with the Mexican government, right? Um, and the the way that the Mexican government was trying to to restrict them. So so there's bilingual um, commercials as well. Um, that towards the end of the book, and this is also you know some other projects that I'm working on um, on advertising. Um, the Mexican law changes um, during the war, during the Second World War, because they actually allow Mexican radio stations to. Um, to receive advertising money from businesses in the United States. Oh yeah, um, I was wondering about that. Like who? Because you're talking about commercial stations. So yeah, who yes. is paying for the commercials? Exactly. So um, you know, we would have a, a panaderia, right? You know, a, a tortilleria that was in that was in El Paso um, and that wanted to you know to sell their their bread, right, or or their furniture, right? You know, um, to to their local audience, but they had to go you know, across the border to Ciudad Juarez uh, to to pay that station to advertise for them um, to broadcast, you know, back into into Texas. 
Oh, so um, they could so do you, that. They could cross the border to pay the bill. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they, <laughs> they would cross. <laughs> they would cross the border, you know, pay the bill, um, and it worked really well for them, especially you know, right, you know, early 1940s um, until af- after the Second World War. That's when you had the when you begin to see more of the Spanish language, like full full time, you know, 24 hours a, a day stations. Um, before that, you know, the, these these you know Mexican immigrants. Um, in the United States, they, 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 they had limited outlets, right? You know, limited ways that they could actually sell their, their products. And so, um, yeah, so as I said, this is also an, a new project that I'm working on because there are a lot of, you know, furniture stores. There's a lot of, you know, obviously uh, markets, you know, the little bodegas, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, car repairs, <laughs> uh, you know, garages. And, you know, you have taxi services, for example, you know, that, that, that are using, you know, in the United States that are using these Mexican stations to, to broadcast their services in Spanish, um, you know, for their for the audience, you know, in San Antonio, for example, um, you know, way, so, way up north. Mm-hmm. And so I'm assuming just maybe give us a little bit of context about what's happening on the United States, on the United States licensed airwaves, as far as uh, having programming that's aimed at the Spanish speaking population or immigrants, like how much of that is happening in that period of time, 1930 to 1950. Yeah, uh, definitely. There, um, there's one broadcaster that um, whose story I tell. Um, his name is um, or was Pedro J. Gonzalez. Uh, he was a, a um, operator in in um, in Los Angeles, um, and he had a, um, a radio program called Los Madrugadores, which is the you know the early risers um, because it, it was his program was from four to six in the morning. You know. Um, during the during the weekdays, uh, and he wanted to, you know, the, the purpose was, you know, so this is over a U.S. commercial radio station, um, just just to clarify, and he wanted to, yeah, to, to basically, you know, wake people up, you know, as they were as they were getting ready to to go to work, and so I I was um, I I heard about him, I don't remember how, but his papers are are at UCLA at the at the Chicano um, Studies um, Research Center, and so. Um, you know, at that archive, you know, there are a couple, there are a couple, you know, letters from listeners um, from the time, you know, so early, you know, earlier, you know, mid 1930s that, that are saying, you know, thank you so much. You know, you, you really help, you know, every time, you know, I heard you on the radio, I knew it was time to wake up, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, as my wife, you know, made breakfast for me, you know, I listened to, you know, these type of, you know, still really traditional, right, you know, types of stories, but, but he was really famous. Um, he recorded, you know, with, um, I, of course, now I'm not gonna remember the exact name, but, you know, he, 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 you know, also was a singer and a performer. Um, and so he is one example. So what they would call um, them would be um, block programming, right? So Mexican entrepreneurs and, you know, Mexican businessmen, a lot of these, you know, this happened obviously also, you know, in Texas, right? Um, you know, Texas and California are the, the, these big, um, big central areas. And so they would pay for the advertising and pay for the airtime um, for this, you know, these particular blocks of time. Um, and, the, you know, the, the U.S. commercial stations, of course, would say, you know, sure, if you can pay for it, you know, go ahead. Right. But but they would you know, they would be limited to only playing, you know, Spanish language music or Spanish language programming during during that time, you know, whatever they could they could pay for. And usually it was early in the morning, um, you know, sometimes late, late at night. Um, I have found, for example, um, you know, sort of, you know, related. It, I have found uh, other um, 
like religious programming, you know, like sometimes they, they would broadcast like mass, for example, in Spanish, which I don't know who paid for that, you know, but, you know, I, I'm assuming, you know, it was a combination of, you know, maybe, you know, some a Catholic church, you know, in um, L.A. But but I am, you know, that, that is, a cur- you know, I was curious about that when I, I saw a lot of, you Yeah, know, we've Spanish heard that and in, we've had a number <laughs> of episodes that have talked about religion on the radio. And we've heard um, bits and pieces of that story as far as, um, you know, religious broadcasters paying for airtime on different stations, um, mm-hmm. you know, people who didn't necessarily have their own stations. So that that kind of rings true. And that's interesting that there's, there's also the Spanish language component to religious broadcasting at that time. Well, it continues mm-hmm. to today, right? I mean, it, it, you know, it's paid time programming, especially on the AM dial is, is still very common in the U S uh, much of this is, uh, you know, in languages other than English um, and as well on, on shortwave, <laughs> right? There are commercial shortwave yeah. uh, broadcasters in the United States uh, whose schedule is mostly made up of paid for time. And much of it, of course, is religious. Um, much of it is, is in English, but not exclusively, um, you know, because, you know, the op, you know to operate a shortwave station in particular can be very expensive, but even operating an AM station can be relatively expensive. And, and certainly one way to keep those the bills paid is to simply, um, you know, auction off the time. You know, I don't know. This isn't an aside I will, I will make here. Well, and some of those stations have... Um have multiple languages now that you're mentioning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll it'll be four hours in Chinese or, you know, or Mandarin or something, et cetera. Uh, Just a funny aside, but I think it's relevant. Radio Survivor, we have recently been getting lots of emails from operators of commercial Hmm. FM stations in the U.S., blocks of them that primarily air Christian programming. Somehow we've made it onto one of their lists of 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 of, 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 a, of a program syndicator, and they're they're but the, but this isn't free. They're offering us blocks of time at various rates. Uh, it's not something we do. Uh, our show yeah. our show airs without fee on uh, community radio stations. And we don't have stations. a ministry. They and we they don't believe that we have a ministry. So I don't know how it turns we about. We tick all the boxes. <laughs> but uh, it, it, we got one, and we we're like, okay, maybe this is a one off. But then several more started coming in and we realized we must have shown up on some list but it shows you that, that, that this sort of programming not only on the am or shortwave dial but also on the fm dial i mean continues to exist at least uh, throughout the united states um and i'm certain uh that that that, that uh it is not only uh you know ministry in english as well um on, mm-hmm. on these various stations uh that they're willing to take all mm-hmm. all, all comers and uh, recognizing that you know that there are folks uh diasporas uh, you know of all types throughout throughout the country uh who, who may look uh to the radio for um for this type of service and i want to remind everyone we're listening to radio survivor well we're making radio survivor you're listening to radio <laughs> survivor and we're here for the love of radio and sound uh, my name is paul reese with me is jennifer waits our guest today is uh, sonia robles uh who is the author of mexican waves radio broadcasting along mexico's northern border 1930 to 1950 it's out uh, from the university of arizona press uh, sonia is also an assistant professor of history at the University of Delaware. And, and we are, you know, specifically talking about this range of broadcasting along the U.S.-Mexican border during this period, uh, sort of uh, pre- and, and post-war, uh, uh, post-World War II. And we've been talking about the immigrant story and, and how mm-hmm. immigrants had access to the airwaves. And 
on the show, we've talked about this as well and, and how certain populations have been historically excluded from the airwaves in the United States. And, and you write in your book a bit about how, um, I think I want to quote from you because it's such a great quote. You say, like Mexican immigrants, the African-American community purchased many phonographs and records during the 1920s and 1930s and turned away from local English language radio because it did not reflect their taste, preferences and culture. So I just I wanted to see if you could talk a bit about that dynamic and the role that Mexican immigrants played in early U.S. radio. Um, yes, um, so yeah, um, as the as the quote that that um, that you just um, mentioned um, says, I, I think you know records are are a real key actor, right, uh, in this in this radio story. Um, not just for the Borderlands, but I think for for Mexican uh, Mexican radio in general, um, because the Mexican um, recording industry just had a had a late start um, compared to the United States. I think you know the the broadcasting industry was you know pretty much you know you know right there. We have you know, 1921, right? You know the first um, first you know stations. But I think the recording industry takes a little bit longer to take off. And so what's happening is that the Mexican you know stars are traveling uh, to the um, to the northern borderlands first, and then you know going to you know for example San Antonio, and then you know over towards LA, or but but you know mostly actually you know um, New York, um, for example, um, to to make records um, in Spanish, right? These Spanish language records. Um, some of them are staying um, in the United States. Um, Tito Guizard is is one of them, for example. You know hired by NBC. Um, you know, he he begins, you know, this, I think they had, I think the program was called something, the Americas, you know, the Programa de las Americas or something. And so, um, you know, Mexican um, stars really make a name for themselves in the United States first with these records. Um, and then they go back to Mexico, right? And that they, a lot of them don't stay um, here in the, you know, in the United States, they go back to Mexico um, because they want to, you know, obviously, you know, they, they that's where they began or, you know, they have a, a radio contract, you know, a, a film contract, you know, something like that. And so records are, are really important. Um, and, and a lot of the story um, is told um, by um, several authors, um, but but one um, singer that's, that has to be mentioned, um, who I mentioned a couple of times in the book is uh, Lidia Mendoza. Um, she was the... the um, really famous, um, you know, she was a Chicana, right? She was born um, in Texas, but she recorded, um, I, I don't even run it, you know, I don't even remember, you know, the amount of records um, that she made, but she was called um, the Alondra de la Frontera, you know, the sort of, you know, songbird of, of the border. Um, and she was really famous um, and traveled, you know, in these circuits. Um, I know that, you know, several, um, like I said, you know, Chicana scholars have written about her. Um, there's also um, an autobiography, you know, about her, um, a couple of other pictures. And so, so yes, you begin to see that, um, that records are sort of, you know, the, they kind of lead a lot of, of the story of the radio. Um, for the Spanish language community, um, they would just prefer, you know, to buy the record than to turn on the radio, um, you know, in the United States because it, it wasn't in their native language. It wasn't, you know, what they wanted to hear. So, <laughs> And these records, they weren't hearing on the radio in the U.S. So, I mean, is that part of the reason, um, you know, a lot of these border stations, were they playing a lot of music? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the um, one of the chapters, um, I begin with a story of this group that, you know, goes into Mexico to to, you know, play a song live on the air. 
um, and then they go back into you know to San Antonio to record the the song, uh-huh. <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, because, you know, just, just to kind of show you, right. All in, you know, within a couple of hours, right. You know, because, because basically, yeah, I mean, you know, many times it, um, or, or, or Lydia Mendoza, right. Who I just mentioned, you know, many times that they would, they, they would play her records, you know, cause she was a little bit more popular. Um, but it, it was expensive to, to pay for records, right. For a lot of these stations as well. Um, so, you know, it was expensive to, to hire artists, but it was also expensive to get the records. So, um, you know, many times it was just sort of, you know, let's see who can, you know, who can show up for this, you know, this live broadcast or, you know, let's play sort of older records. But as far as in the United States, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Mexican stars, they would they would come, they would go to the United States, you know, they would make records, but then they would go, go back. And so some of the records obviously stayed here and the Mexican Mexican immigrant community purchased them. Right. And so that, that was what they were playing at home. So just shifting a little bit, you also talk a little bit about um, the difference between broadcasting and the northern border versus in other parts of Mexico. So I'm curious about, and you talk about there are specific advantages that these broadcasters have on the northern border. So what are those? What, why do they have a leg up broadcasting in that area? Um, for, for parts, um, for, for, for their transmitters, um, for their stations, um, you know, obviously I think, you know, right, right before, or, or we began this interview talking about all the, all the cables, right. <laughs> In Paul's, you know, Paul's desk, right. You know, all, all this equipment, you know, that, that you have, you know, for recording. So a lot of the, um, especially, you know, Tijuana, Ensenada, um, you know, I, I found, you know, a, a lot of these records of these operators, you know, going to L.A., for example, you know, to, to buy the parts that they needed, you know, for, you know, for their station in Tijuana. Obviously, you know, they could do that within a week, a couple of weeks. You know, if, if you're in central Mexico and you're you're trying to get, you know, a, I don't know, a, a tube, you know, or, or, you know, some sort of an, an old, you know, microphone, it's going to take you months. Right. You know, in the 1930s um, later with the Second World War. Um, the, the U.S., you know, just, I, I don't have the specifics here, right, you know, but they, they stopped production, right, on, on a lot of this material. And so a lot of the stations in Mexico, they, they, they actually couldn't, um, you know, get off, the, you know, begin because they needed a particular part that they could only purchase in the United States, right? So I think, you know, being closer to, to San Antonio, being closer to Los Angeles, um, you know, really helps with the, with the, with the actual parts of stations. Um, and then on a couple occasions, um, there, there were some operators that went to, um, to these, you know, wild, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what, what, what type of schooling this was, but, you know, they sort of operator, you know, broadcasting school <laughs> of the 1920s, you know, and in LA, you know, and, and they would go and, um, again, I, I don't know what kind of curriculum, you know, they had in, in this type of operator, you know, broadcaster school, but they, they would get their training in the United States and then they would go back to Mexico, um, and, and be, you know, have, be more professional, you know, sort of have the certificate that said, you know, I went to school and X broadcasting place in, you know, Los Angeles or Hollywood, something like that. So, um, so yeah, yes, that's that, interesting that, that, two examples. That, mm-hmm. that proximity to, um, the technology that you could purchase in the United States. And then you mentioned the proximity to recording studios. That's very interesting kind of traversing, you know, across the border, um, to act for these very pragmatic reasons. 
How industrialized is Mexico at this period? And, and so let's let's talk about sort of maybe the pre-war period, you know, in the 1930s, right? Because certainly at this point, the United States is very industrialized uh, and moving into into more of a, you know, technologically industrialized, which, of course, is, is propelled all the more forward by World War II. And, and our need to, you know, to, to develop military equipment. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, and, and so you mentioning how uh, the broadcasters who are along the border, uh, you know, have access to, to, to go buy equipment in the United States in part because that's really where it's manufactured. At this point in time, mm-hmm. it's not, yes. you know, uh, unlike now where we associate, uh, you know, electronics and such equipment coming from com- coming from China or East Asia, you know, it, 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 well until the ni- 1970s, you know, these things were, were principally manufactured in the United States or, 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 or Europe. So, you know, was there even that that uh, domestic capacity in Mexico at the time in the 1930s? Yes, um, not really. It was a lot of just home homemade, right? You know, um, types of of receivers. I mean, I think the the industrialized history. I mean, the history of industrialization in Mexico is is limited to the to the north. You have you know Monterrey, for example. You know, the second largest city in Mexico. You know, um, the, the center. Um, in the 19th century and, you know, before the revolution, there was a lot of focus on textiles, for example. You know, the, the, again, the, this is, you know, remnants from the colonial era, right? Um, but, you know, Spain, you know, needed, you know, different little, you know, outposts and, and things like that. So it's it's in the north. It's in the center. Um, the, the, the um, you know, one of the problems that Mexico has um, is, is that is, there isn't a lot of arable land, right? And so there are... Um, Obviously, you know, farms and, you know, there is, you know, wheat production, you know, during the colonial era, you know, for the first time, obviously a lot of, you know, corn and a lot of, you know, fruits, vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, you know, you know, compared to the population, there just isn't a lot of of focus in using up this arable land. And so that that kind of, you know, can't really happen. It's not until the Second World War that Mexico begins, you know, more industrialization, automobile plants, you know, um, a lot of, um, you know, providing raw materials, right, you know, for the allies, um, Mexico, Mexican government takes a while to align with, you know, with the allies. But once they do, you know, they, they, they provide some raw materials, this really helps Mexico, the Mexican economy, um, you know, sort of take off, there's a post World War Two boom, um, the historians have called it the Mexican miracle, <laughs> for example, you know, this, this sort of, so I think, um, so yeah, yes, excellent question. It, it just doesn't have yeah, the industrial capabilities for these, yeah, these little trinkets, right? You know, what some people might call them, you know, this, this little, little, you know, the one cable or, you know, this one particular tube or, you know, the, the quartz, you know, that, that was etched, you know, with the particular. Well, right. Um, and a radio mm-hmm. transmitter in particular actually requires a lot of continuous maintenance. It, 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 I, it, it, someone who has not been in broadcasting, especially has not been in, in in like especially uh, using broadcast uh, transmitters of of that era and that type which which were still pretty much dominant well into the 80s you know required you mentioned tubes I mean these are enormous uh high power things they're dangerous to operate actually and very expensive and they break right they're they're like you know they're you know in the same they're effectively enormous light bulbs in a lot of way and they do burn out and they need replacement and they you know they can be you know a lightning strike or all sorts of other types of calamity can befall them and if it doesn't work you're off the air you know and 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 so i can you know i'm just sort of highlighting and underlining that kind of 
why that geographic advantage was was so tremendous because i think in our day and age it's very easy for us to take sort of uh you know the easy accessibility to consumer goods for granted and forget that that is something uh relatively recent for for, for folks anywhere in north america and, you know uh, folks in rural united states would have had similar issues and similar problems uh, yeah. yes well. absolutely i mean Yes, still. I mean, to, to this very day, electronics, you know, any types of, you know, shoes, consumer items, you know, pe- people, you just buy them in the United States if, if you are privileged enough to do that. I mean, you know, and I mean, obviously, we're not, nobody's really, you know, in the future or, or in the past, if anybody can remember, you know, taking a trip from, I don't know, Houston to Mexico City or, you know, Houston to Monterrey. And, you know, you, you see, I mean, I love this, right? Because when I, when I was taking these trips, you see, you know, families with these huge, you know, shopping bags, you know, full of, you know, shoes, <laughs> you know, electronics, right? You know, any any type of thing, because it's just, you know, it, it the import tax, right? You know, and, and all of these other taxes are, are so high because, yeah, I mean, Mexico just doesn't, they're just not producing that, at, at, even to this day, right? And so it's, the U.S. is still the place, um, you know, to to buy a lot of the, these goods. Mm-hmm. And kind of to to get back to these border stations, um, could you maybe share, I love to hear quirky stories, maybe some quirky stories about some of the more unusual stations that were operating on the northern border of Mexico? Um, Yes, um, I think. I mean, I think quirky can be (laughs) widely defined, right? Um, I think um, there were stations um, in the um, in in Tijuana um, and Ensenada that that were um, a little bit, you know, on the on the sort of I don't know what 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 like a good definition for it would be that they they were on lawbreakers but not really lawbreakers right you know that there's a way that you can you know break the law in mexico and you know get away with it and, <laughs> or you know not get away with it and so um you know w- one particular station um that that comes to mind um is is this man um by the name of uh, jorge la bastida sorry it took me a little bit um who had the station um in one of the islands off of um ensenada um, and he, you know, basically, I don't know, like one, one weekend, you know, um, I don't know, pretended that somebody was stranded, um, you know, and, um, on this island and got, got the attention of, you know, of San Diego, um, got the attention of, you know, the sort of the, the U.S. side and, you know, kind of played a, a hoax on them, you know, um, the, and the archive, it appears and there's, you know, there's like 20 newspaper articles, you know, of just like, you know, Mexicans play cruel joke on, you know, on us, you know, like that they, they got on the airwaves and sort of, you know, pretended like somebody was drowning, you know, things like that. So again, I don't, it's not really quirky. It's just more kind of, you know, playing a joke on the United States um, government a little bit. Um, I mean, one of the stories that, that I, that I really like um, is they have to do a little bit more with ways people use the station. So, you know, what one particular woman, for example, um, in 1938, um, you know, she goes to the station. Um, she, she's just found out that her husband has died, and she's trying to send a, a radio message to to her town. You know, she, she's trying to let people know that she's on her way, basically. Um, and you know, she goes to the station, and, and they say, "Well, you know, um, you 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 can't. You have to have this, you know, particular authorization from." you know, from the government worker that, you know, that, that's in charge, the government broker in charge of the station. And, and she, she writes back kind of saying, you know, 
what are you talking about? You know, you guys are obviously, you know, you're, you're constantly advertising, you know, commercials for beer, you know, you're, you're, you're advertising, you know, baptism, you know, when somebody is having a party, you know, she, she, she gives this long list of things, you know, like, why can't I basically, you know, tell my, <laughs> tell my family, you know, that I'm on my way kind of thing. And so, so it, it's more, um, you know, I found in the archives, um, more examples of that, right. Of, of ways that people were, we're using stations in a particular way. Um, and so, yes, I think that, that does reflect obviously on the programming, but also on just, you know, what radio means, you know, to, um, to, to people in Northern Mexico, right. You know, how do they use it um, to obtain a particular, you know, a, a pretty simple purpose, you know, like talking to my family <laughs> quickly. Right. Right? Uh-huh. Well, so Which, what, like, what, yeah, in the United States, you're not supposed to do that because it's considered point to point communication. Like right. you're not yes. supposed to talk directly to one person mm-hmm. so I, I don't know if that was part of their issue or um, oh, wait, can we dig into that if it really was just hypocrisy you know yeah. dig yeah. into the meaning right like so i think that's often you know that changes over time and of course has changed over time anywhere there's radio uh, what radio means to somebody in 1930 is certainly different than it means now 90 years later um can you can you talk a little bit about like what what radio means to or meant to those listeners, whether they where whether they were on either side of the border, but listening to these stations, you know what what is the meaning of that? You know, if if you can if you can kind of tackle it, if that's not too vague of a question. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I think for Mexican immigrants in the United States, these these Mexican stations, uh, you know, along the northern border were were connections to home, right? It was, it was a, a con- connection to a place that they had, you know, that they had to flee, you know, during the revolution, for example, you know, sometimes, you know, forcefully, right. You know, so, you know, to, to, you know, literally because it was, you know, better to, you know, to be on the run, right. You know, than to stay, you know, in, in a particular village. Uh, so it's a connection to home. There's, there's a lot of, of nostalgia with this music, you know, this, this sort of, um, you know, I, I know that in the, in the letter that I, um, when I responded to the initial, um, you know, DXing at, you know, or at, you know, 1700, or I forget now the name of, of the, of the particular post that you mentioned, you know, I think, you know, music is, is so powerful. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure how many people in the United States, I think, you know, when you, when you listen to just a lot of this music that is played here in the United States or music that you might hear at a Mexican restaurant, for example, you know, it's, you know, this is, this is country music, right? You know, this isn't, you know, these aren't the urban sounds of, you know, Mexico city, for example. Um, and the reason that, you know, that this particular music is chosen is because so, so much of the immigrant population is from the rural countryside, right? You know, historically they, they have been from these rural areas. And so you're playing this country music that, is talking about, you know, how much I love my ranch and how wonderful it is to, you know, go outside, <laughs> right? And, you know, be with my family or, you know, or the changing of the seasons or, you know, things like that, you know, th- things that really sort of display how beautiful, you know, the Mexican countryside is. Um, and th- this isn't, you know, the this urban sound, right, that the people in Mexico City are, are playing or are even interested in, right? So th- there's a big disconnect um, that this this has come up in a lot of my, of my classes, right? You know, when I teach about Mexican history, and they, you know, people in Mexico that they, they don't understand how the US audience, you know, 
can't understand that the people who are undocumented aren't, you know, aren't from the cities, right? You know, that they're from the countries, you know, that there's this disconnect, you know, or they think, oh, all of you guys think we're all, you know, undocumented. Or, but there's just, there, there's a big disconnect between rural and urban. Um, so I think um, for the, the Mexican immigrants in the United States, you know, the radio was really a connection. It was a portal, you know, to, um, to their home, um, a, a way to connect easily, right? Um, and as far as the local population in Mexico, I mean, I, I think the example that I, I gave, you know, of, of this widow would be one example. I think it was a tool. It was it was technology um, in the 30s. It was exciting, right? You know, just to, to be able to, you know, to have, you know, to see these big towers, right? You know, the archives, you have these pictures of stations, you know, because you had to you had to turn in a, a diagram of what your tower was going to look like, you know, mm-hmm. when you when you requested a, <laughs> when you requested a concession, you had to, you know, you had to have an engineer draw, you know, outline this, you know, draft this, you know, this tower. And so, you know, this was a big deal, you know, especially in if you think of, of what the northern border, you know, the, the desert, you know, you're, you're driving along, you know, and you see, you know, this, this gigantic tower, right? So I think that they were, it was symbolic. It was, it was progress. It was technology, right? It was modernity, things like that. No, that, that's wonderful. I mean, and, and I, I appreciate that you point out, you know, the misperception of Mexico and Mexican culture in the United States. And I, and I hadn't really put, put it together as, as I think you're pointing out how, you know, so much of the Southern side of the border is rural, you know, in addition to the fact that many of the people, not all of it, of course, there are cities there, but like the largest cities are not really close, <laughs> you know, uh, whether it's Monterey <laughs> or, or it's, or it's Mexico city, uh, you know, and whereas if we contrast that with our Northern, with the United States, Northern border with Canada, I mean, all of the Canadian made, most of the major Canadian cities are clustered at the border. You know, mm-hmm. so when, when if you're if you're you know Detroit and Toronto are very close together, Detroit, uh, you know Buffalo and, and and Toronto, you know, and and it, and I'm sure that that has uh, some real impact on our perceptions as well as certainly you know even the border radio that that one experiences on the northern border of of the United States along Canada, right? Because we have mm-hmm. uh, similar situations in which we have Canadian stations serving American audiences and American stations serving Canadian office audiences, but very often, but not always, of course, uh, you know, there are wide swaths there in the prairie provinces and the upper Midwest that, that, that don't quite fall into this, but there's not so many people there either, you know, they're, they're urban stations, right. Mm-hmm. And, and they're reflecting sort of urban and, and, and cosmopolitan tastes um, in that, in, in that way. Right. And of course, at this point, it's far more homogenized um, as I imagine it might, it might also be homogenized everywhere uh, in the world. Uh, but uh, I think I think that's 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 an interesting point that I hadn't quite um, fully fully thought through, and 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 uh, my apologies to your students in Mexico City for their uh, because of whatever we're sitting there going why are why do Americans not understand? <laughs> I yes. don't I don't blame them for being for for being perplexed because it, I, I I agree it's perplexing. <laughs> you also talk a bit about some of these stations that pretended they were in the United States when they were actually in Mexico. What mm. was that all about? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I, I think, um, yeah, I opened the, I think the introduction, right. With, with the story and, and um, you know, the, the testimony from the operator was, you know, I, I didn't think people would, my friends would believe me, you know, <laughs> um, you know, this, this, that, that I was really in Mexico. Right. So I pretended to be, um, to be in Los Angeles, which, 
you know, you, you would think it'd be the other way around. Right. But I think, um, yes. And why um, would, yeah. Why do you think his friends wouldn't believe him? Is it, is it part of this sort of, um, you know, we're talking about there being more production and industry in the United States. Is that why? Yeah. Just, yeah. The, this sort of industrial, you know, superiority, you know, technological superiority, right. The sense of, you know, um, are you realists in your garage? You know, I mean, you know, that this goes back to the sort of, you know, the ham, right. And the, the DX, you know, culture um, of, you know, you have these shacks, right. There's radio shacks. And so, you know, it, yeah, it was sort of just like, well, my friends aren't going to believe that I'm really, you know, building this, <laughs> you know, this transmitter here, you know, but, but they would believe me if they thought I was in, you know, in the United States because they're, you know, m- more industrialized, you know, they, they have the technological capabilities, right. Um, things like that. So, yeah, I mean that it was the border blasters that, that actually really, really tried to, to have their state on the U S side and, you know, turned in these crazy proposals to, you know, buy the cables that would connect, you know, El Paso with Ciudad Juarez. And, you know, they had a lot of money, so they had resources, so they, they wanted to do that. But me- the Mexican government repeatedly, you know, just said, this is a Mexican, you know, your your concession is in Mexico and you you better stay on this side of, of mm. you know, the, the border. It was just more, it was pretending, I think, you know, to be in the U.S. that, that happened um, several times. I'm sure it's happened more than the times that I found, but, but it is curious. It's interesting. Yeah. Sonia Robles, you're author of the book, Mexican Ways Radio Broadcasting Along Mexico's Northern Border. You're assistant professor of history at the University of Delaware. And I actually want to ask you what, what got you interested in this topic in, 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 in what got, what, what brought you your interest to, to trying to learn more about uh, this broadcasting along Mexico's Northern Border? Um, yeah, I, I grew up, uh, traveling, uh, back and forth, um, between the United States and Mexico. My, my mother's from Texas. Um, my father's from Mexico city. Um, when I was growing up in Mexico city, I, um, I went to elementary school there. Um, my parents had a U.S. van, you know, like a Scooby-Doo kind of van, you know, <laughs> and we would, but it was, a, but it had the U.S. plates. And so we would, we would leave, you know, we, we would make these border, border runs, you know, these, these trips. And so, um, so for me, the, the border was always, yes, it was, it was a place, um, could easily be crossed. Right. But, but the, but they didn't have a, a lot of, of, you know, particular meaning, right? It, it was a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, right? It's it's looking for for its own kind of meeting. So so that, that's sort of just the, the personal side, you know, the, the background. Um, but as a as an academic, right, and, and as a graduate student, um, I think it wasn't it wasn't that I began as an as a radio scholar or somebody that was interested in this. Um, it was that I was looking for. Um, a topic that was, you know, that talked about media um, and that was also transnational, um, you know, a topic that, uh, that that defied borders, you know, kind of, you know, broad, broadly speaking. Um, and so I was, you know, I was interested in film, you know, I was interested um, in, you know, magazine, you know, just you know, any type of, you know, media that, that's just sort of, you know, circulating. Um, and so, uh, you know, during the year of research in Mexico City, um, you know, just kind of sitting around in the archives, you know, I, I, I was when I found all of these, um, all of these files from these stations, um, right? I mean, I think, I think it's, it's really important, I, I, I feel that for, for people to understand that it's not that like, 
I think many times historians, we, we, we focus on, you know, like this particular little kernel, right? And, you know, where like, you know, this happened in this corner and this time period, you know, and, and maybe there's the impression that this is how it all began, right? But it, it, many times it's the other way around, right? It's sort of, you know, hey, I was looking into this bigger project, um, but the sources really kind of led me to, to the story, right? Because we can't really tell a story without the sources, um, as historians, right? You know, as novelists, of course you can, <laughs> right? As, you know, when you're writing fiction, this is great, right? Because you can say all these wonderful things, you know? Um, but I think for us, you know, we, we're tied so much to to our sources and, you know, the, the story, that the, the incomplete story, right? Of course it's incomplete, right? But the incomplete story that they're telling. So, um, so yeah, th that's how I, I, I got into it. And then, like I said, I think, um, my my graduate advisor really challenged me to you know to to push the boundary and, and to use these archives on both sides of the border. You know, he said, you know, you're bilingual. You know, you've grown up in you know both of these places. You know, just go for it. You know, kind of thing. And so I think, um, yeah, I, I I really you know I, I dug into archives in in both places, but I, I focused on the Mexican story, right? The Mexican side of the story. Um, yeah, because that really fills in a lot of gaps, right? Is a lot of the scholarship about border radio really takes a different, really takes a different approach, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, definitely. And and I've met um, both Gene um, Fowler and Bill Crawford, you know, who who wrote Border Radio, and you know, and I think they're um, wonderful people. You know, I think that their story is fascinating, you know, that, and I know other people have also written about, you know, these border blasters, but the, their book is sort of, you know, the, the classic, you know, the, the, the classic tale. But I think, um, yeah, you know, they, they were, they were enthusiastic also to know more about the Mexican side of the story because in, in their research, they, you know, they came across that as well. Right. And so it wasn't, it, you know, it's, it's not, a mystery to to those of us kind of on the inside right it's 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 more just how can we make our story you know known outwardly right you know what what can we tell the um the public it wasn't just the boy blasters it was also you know these mexican entrepreneurs who were doing their own thing um during this very particular you know time in history um of of, of radio um yeah, Sonia Robles, I love that you've really helped to expand our understanding of, of border radio. I, that's something that, that I love doing on Radio Survivor is kind of broadening our perspective about what was happening in any given era and, and telling some of these untold stories. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. Yeah, it, you know, I, I'm glad that you, I, I'm personally glad your advisor pushed you. <laughs> I mean, because you know, it, it, what, often the story doesn't get told. So I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a PhD dropout. So, you know, so I'm, I'm familiar with academe. Uh, and likewise, and I know <laughs> simple things like, you know, being monolingual often curtails your, your, your scope, right? Because, you know, and so like the archives, uh, you know, that are, that are there that the Mexican government has, um, you may not even try to deal with if you don't speak Spanish, right? And if, or you're unwilling to, or it's too much, too much of a hurdle to learn and, or, or improve your Spanish, you know, and that often means that there's these blind spots, right? You know, ultimately, you know, in the scholarship, whether it's history or, linguistics or uh you know com communication political economy and things like that um and that's why 
you know, the story gets dominated by one particular vantage point. In part, in part. There's all other biases, of course, built into the, <laughs> built into it as well. Tons and tons of biases. But but that's one that, right. that in particular, um, you know, seems very pertinent to, to, to the discussion we're having. Uh, having here and how the mm-hmm. also how the you know sometimes the story finds you right i love that you're just that you're going through the national mm-hmm. archives and, and you happen upon something you get this nugget right and and what you you know something that that really uh ends up being a pretty rich vein it's so cool and so is um are you your current sounds like your current projects are also focusing on broadcasting too so you found that this is an area that that you really want to stick with as you know, kind of your focus. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I'm, I'm continuing this, um, this focus on the, the Mexican immigrant community, um, and, and advertisements, um, you know, that this very particular, you know, it begins with the second world war. And so I think, you know, we're, we're moving forward, but, um, you know, it's important to, to note, right. That the U S advertising agencies, you know, any study on, you know, on advertising in the Spanish speaking community doesn't exist, right. You know, before the fifties, you know, the sixties, I mean, it was just sort of like, you know, as though this audience was not there. Right. And we know that they were there, right. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's remarkable and not right at the same time. And so, um, so yes, um, they, Mexican immigrant community, you know, was, was, you know, paying these Mexican radio stations, you know, to, to advertise for them, but there were other ways, right. That, that they were, you know, paying, you know, other, other sort of outlets, right. You know, for their services, you know, to try to get, you know, um, their, their products sold. Right. And so I'm, I'm really curious about that. And then also this other project is this, this ministry of, of public education. Um, I, again, yeah, I, I was fascinated. So by, interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, this, this radio station, you know, the, the, this woman, Maria Luisa Ross, um, she's, she's sort of my, my next obsession. Right. <laughs> so I'm excited. Yeah. We mm-hmm. definitely need scholarship about some of these female radio station owners and, pioneers mm-hmm. so i'm looking forward to hearing more about that too maybe maybe yeah. on a future episode yes. <laughs> in 10 years <laughs> no, we'll, we'll see awesome. yeah. well yeah. you know you can you know as, if you're willing to share things in progress right i mean that's something which we which which we're happy to always discuss uh you know uh, yeah it's true like kate jewel uh, it was on a month or two ago talking about something in progress or about her college radio historical research. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so right. we're, we, you know, yeah. is, you know, we're, you know, to the extent to which you're always, to which you're willing yeah, to Yeah, it's share, fun to hear about the research process. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, no, definitely. And I think, I mean, yeah, I, I know Jennifer, I mean, I know you're, um, you're really interested also in, in college radio and, um, the, you know, the Mexico's college radio station, um, the, like the, one of what the one of the first ones began in 1937 and it was, was you know it was it was a really big deal this is the station of the of the unam the, the the largest university i think in all of latin america you know they they, they have just like an obscene amount of students there um if if you've ever um if you've ever heard about this university and this particular station it is really important um for mexico's history because the university is is autonomous and to this very day um you know that they they don't you know that they have like this very particular you know anti-government you know stance you know they're autonomous and and the the station is still uh, around today 
um, I, I did just, just preliminary research there, um, a couple of, you know, years ago, oh, but, cool. uh, but yeah, I, I was, I just wanted to, to share that with you as well, because I, I think, you know, obviously there were right, you know, college stations all over the world. Right. But I think, you know, how, how much do we really know about Mexico and Latin America, um, college radio stations? This is the only one that I've really, um, that I've been able to, to actually have, you know, archival documentation from. So I was, Oh yeah, we should, I would love to know more about college radio history all around the world. And um, Mm -hmm. that would be fun to talk to you about that and hear more of what you've uncovered about, about that station. Yeah, definitely. I would. Yes. Part two. My thanks again. Hello everybody. It's Eric Klein uh, giving you the outro to today's podcast. Sonia Robles, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. Sorry I couldn't be there. Sonia is a teacher and scholar of Mexican and U.S. broadcast media history and author of Mexican Waves, Radio Broadcasting Along Mexico's Northern Border, 1930 to 1950. Radio Survivor is online at radiosurvivor.com where you can find show notes for today's podcast, links to previous episodes where we talked about border radio on Radio Survivor, as well as the article that Paul wrote in which he uh, found this uh, Tijuana border blaster in modern times, in our current era, and um, all of that stuff, not to mention, what, 10 years of radio uh, blogging, broadcasting, and a passion for the history as well as the present of of radio culture in the United States, of non-commercial radio culture as well as, uh, you know, radio culture for commercial purposes uh, when it tickles our fancy. I'm sure I could do a better job of describing how Radio Survivor uh, cares about commercial radio because we do all the time, but it's a very specific kind. It's not industry news, as it were, so much as um, how it impacts the people who listen, the people who love radio. Well, my name is Eric Glein, and I get to ramble on this podcast out- outro because I did the edit of today's uh, work. You know, this also airs every week on radio stations, so there's a 59-minute edit, and then, then there was this a uh, one-hour and eight-minute edit, And the two are similar in many ways, and yet uh, there's a lot of work that goes into making both. And so in addition to uh, the work is that I uh, conclude the show (laughs) like this. Oh, the reason I'm on the microphone, you can email us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com is the email address. We always love to hear from you. Sonia Robles emailed Paul to uh, answer his question and that's how sonia became a guest on today's program you can find radio survivor as a podcast every week wherever you get your podcasts stitcher apple podcasting spotify of all things and anywhere else those indie podcast catchers you can subscribe always for free we're also on the social medias if you would like to interact with the producers there twitter and facebook instagram even on behalf of Paul Reismandel, Jennifer Waits, my name is Eric Klein, as well as Matthew Lazar, who's always working hard, but not often heard on the podcast these days. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.